just turn the lights on. I'm going to ask you kind of the reverse question. How do you respond to darkness? How do we respond to darkness? This week there was one of those stories that goes around in the news uh, that's fake, uh, that uh, NASA have confirmed that there are going to be six days of darkness in December. Uh, that basically someone came up with a story that there's going to be this solar storm or something and it's going to put all this dust in the sky and for six days we're going to be in, in darkness. And uh, some people got very excited about that. Some people got very carried away. Uh, and some people started asking each other kind of the, the key question, what are you going to do when it's dark? You know, as if it's something really positive. Now, I, I think actually for a lot of us, we turn from the fake news to the real news and we go, it is dark. This world is a dark place. You think about the, uh, the stuff going on in the Middle East. You think about some of the stories that are in for a moment and then gone, and yet the reality is still there. Just think about that group of, uh, in Nigeria, the group of children that were kidnapped. We didn't hear much about that f- since. But, you know, just those kind of things happening. Uh, and then you've got Ebola and all the fear that that's generating in people. And, uh, and then there's other stuff going on. And actually, you find yourself sometimes looking in the mirror and going, actually, I'm kind of dark. There's stuff about me that I don't want anyone to know. And it's not just out there. It's in here. There's, there's kind of a darkness in this world. And so the question then becomes, so what do we do about it? What, what's our response to it. I suppose there are really four possible responses. One is to just give up, just to be overwhelmed by it and to feel like there's no hope, nothing can be done, and just give up. And if we thought about the suicide rates, we'd see something very bleak that's going on in our world. Another option is to say, actually, I'm going to ignore it and I'm just going to live it up. I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to say, I've got so much time. I'm going to live life to the full, whatever that looks like in your world, and just kind of go for it and and do life your way. That's another option. I suppose a third option is to deny the darkness and to say, no, no, there is some inherent goodness. There's, There's goodness all around us. There's good things happening. Let's not be so bleak and so negative. Let's try to be more positive and let's sort of fix things. Let's do our best to fix things. I'm getting towards my middle age years now, and uh, I'm getting a little bit, um, what's the word? Uh, See, I'm getting old, I forget the words now. Uh, A bit nostalgic. Almost 30 years ago, there was a song, anyone under 35, forgive me for this aged reference, but there was a song that was produced by, uh, put the image up, Elliot, it's a slide after that one. This group here, anyone remember that? I can't quite see it, USA for Africa. This was the follow-up to Band-Aid. Remember Live Aid and Band-Aid and Feed the World, Let Them Know It's Christmas Time? This was the American follow-up, uh, written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. And, and maybe you remember this. Now I'm going to mention it. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to mention it, and this is going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the day if you know it. Okay, we are the world. We are the children. We are the ones to make a better day, so let's start giving. It's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives It's true we make a better day, just you and me. Wow, that's a memory. And it's the whole idea is is it's up to us. We can do it. We can fix it. Actually, Bob Dylan, who sang quite uncomfortably on this, and I think it was voted his worst ever song uh, performance, he said later, apparently, that he was really uncomfortable singing it because he didn't believe it. We can save ourselves. We're going to make the world a better place. It's down to us. There's nobody else. 
You see, Bob Dylan wasn't quite with the crowd on that one. He thought there was a fourth response to darkness. If, if their response was, we can do it, come on, we just got to pull ourselves together. Well, then there's the fourth response, which is to accept the darkness in the sense of being realistic, that it's there. There's a lot of negative. There's a lot to be discouraged about. And so we need help. It's not something we can fix ourselves. It's not something we can kind of pull ourselves up. It's that we need to have help from somewhere else. And I think that's what the Bible's saying from cover to cover. And in the book of Isaiah, we're given that constantly all the way through. We thought last week about uh, what the prophets were. This is a group of people that wrote uh, books, but they were really primarily preachers. And they lived hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. And the image that was used quite a few times in the prophets about the prophets was that they are like watchmen. Imagine being in a walled city at night, it's dark, and uh, lots of bad things happen at night, and you're walking the streets. You're thankful that there is watchmen on the walls. Because the watchmen are looking inside to see what's going on and to sort of protect you, sort of a police force in effect. The watchmen are looking outside to see what's going on, to make sure that there's no enemies gathering to launch an attack. And also the watchmen can look out into the distance and see what's coming. And so really that was the image that in the books of the prophets, God gave for the prophets. They're like watchmen. They can give this higher perspective on what's going on in in the people of God. They can give perspective on what's going on in the nations around. And sometimes uh, they can look off into the distance and they can give perspective on what's to come. And so as we're looking at this series called the Jesus Trailers, what we're doing is we're picking some of those looking off into the distance moments and seeing what Isaiah has to say 700 years in advance. That's pretty impressive. That's good eyesight, right? Obviously, he couldn't see it with his eyes. He was given it by God. But 700, in fact, the passage we're looking at this morning, we can date to 735 B.C. Because of the historical stuff that's going on and uh, kind of comparing that to ancient history, we can say, yep, that is 735. And yet he's going to be talking about the birth of Christ, which happened not at zero, but at 4 BC. So 731 years in advance, Isaiah is talking about the birth of Christ. Now you might say, well, hang on a second. How do we know that it was written then? Let's just be a bit skeptical for a minute. Surely it could have been written later, pretending to have been written then, right? Maybe this was written uh, 10 years after Jesus was born or 50 years after Jesus was born. And then they they kind of fixed the date, you know, kind of uh, tipexed it out and put in an old date. Well, okay, let's, let's kind of do the simple answer to that. There's, there's, there's complex answers, and we could go through all the reasons why we know that it was written back in the 700s BC. But here's a very simple solution to that fear, and that is that it was translated from the Hebrew, which it was written in, into the Greek over 250 years before the birth of Christ. And it's kind of hard to translate something that hasn't been written yet, right? So we have evidence. Nobody is doubting that. The most uh, skeptical scholar does not question that Isaiah was translated centuries, two and a half centuries before Jesus was born. So whether you want to say, okay, I'm a skeptic, okay, 250 years in advance, how did he do it, whoever he was? If you're not so skeptical and you want to you know, chase the evidence, okay, 700 years in advance, how did he do it? Seems to me like maybe God was involved in that. 
So we're looking at this section. If you want to grab one of the Bibles on the table in front of you, we're going to look at page 571. And um, page 571, book of Isaiah. This is 735 B.C. And we're not going to read the whole section. It really goes from 7 through to chapter 12, which is quite a lot of material. But we're going to dip in and get a feel for uh, the message that he's giving them and the hope that he's bringing. Okay, so uh, Isaiah chapter 7. Last week we, we looked at chapter 6. We were looking at how Isaiah was called uh, to be a prophet. And he was called as he saw a vision of Christ on the throne of the universe And then we saw also later in the book, he sees Christ on the cross. How how do the cross and the crown, how do those go together? The throne and and the the crucifixion. Well, we'll see that theme again today because he's going to be looking and seeing Christ coming as king and Christ coming and making things right. And he's offering that as hope to a people in a very dark time. And so we'll, we'll chase that out. A little bit, but let's just get a feel for how dark it was. Chapter seven, right at the beginning, it says, "In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham." Don't worry about these names; I have the responsibility of reading them. You don't have the the worry of pronouncing them. So, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem. To wage war against it. So don't worry about the names. Just there's two armies coming against Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, But could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David. That's the royal family. We're told. Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz. That's the king. And the heart of his people shook. As the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You get a feel for kind of the, the tension he's feeling there. He's heard news that the messengers come in, excuse me, king, your honor, you know, uh, your majesty, bow, bow, bow. We've got news. Two countries that are kind of your neighbors are in league with each other and they're determined to come and destroy you. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, what? That's kind of scary news, right? And so he's got this message that two nations are coming to destroy him and he is petrified. He's shaking like the trees. And if the king's scared, the people are scared. So all the people are scared. They're petrified. There's there's this ominous threat right on the doorstep. And Isaiah is the prophet. He's the messenger from God who's going to come in and bring hope in the midst of a very dark time. How does he do that? First of all, he comes to Ahaz and he approaches him with his son under his arm. And his son had a stunning name. It was Sheer Jashub. Right? Uh, you're thinking, that's a good one. I'll save that. All right, Sheer Jashub. Uh, any pregnant ladies here? Make a note. It means, what does it mean? Anyone know? It gives you a little note at the bottom of the page. It means a remnant shall return. That, that is, a few people will come back. That's a bit of a depressing name, isn't it? If you think about it. Oh, uh, hi, Isaiah. Who's this young man? Fine young chap. Oh, this is my son. A few will come back. Oh. And here he is, petrified that these kings are going to come, destroy the nation, maybe take the people away. And here comes the prophet with his son, you know, tall and bold. A few will come back. And then the prophet says to him, ask God for a sign. And Ahaz is a bit arrogant. He, he, He said, I wouldn't want to test God. 
No, not at all. And he doesn't do it. The prophet's not saying you shouldn't. He's saying you should. And the king's going, no, 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 I couldn't possibly. And so Isaiah says, well, I'll give you a sign anyway. And, and then we get this verse. Let's see if you spot the Christmas verse. You know, just burst into a Christmas carol. Well, don't do that. But uh, he asks, he says to him, verse 11, ask the Lord for a sign. Whatever you want, Asa, Ahaz. No, 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 couldn't do that. Verse 13. He said, here then, O house of David, that's the royal family, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's more familiar, isn't it? The virgin shall conceive and give uh, birth to a son, calling him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us. And he goes on to describe how this boy would grow. And before he got to a certain age, those two kingdoms would be wiped out. Now, that's slightly confusing, isn't it? If this is 735 BC, and he's just made a reference to the virgin birth, that's like 731 years away. When did those two nations get destroyed? Uh, about 722. Well, well, certainly before then, but within 13 years. So I think what's going on here is that the prophet's saying, the virgin, the young lady, the unmarried one, is going to have a baby. And before that baby grows up, the problem's going to be taken care of. What's that got to do with Jesus? Actually, nothing at this point. It's just that this young lady, whoever she was, it could be Isaiah is taking a, a second wife. Maybe his first wife died and he's going to have a second wife and she's going to have a son. And then the baby's going to grow. And, and before he gets to a certain age, the, the problem will be dealt with. Or maybe the king's going to marry somebody and he's going to have a son. There's different theories. Either way, this child, whoever it is, is going to be a sign. And he's going to be a message for the nation. And God's going to deal with the enemies. You see, the prophets weren't just looking off into the distant future. It's easy to think of prophets like that, you know, that they're always sort of anticipating hundreds of years. But actually, a lot of what they do is right then and there. What he's saying is, Ahaz, king, listen, God is at work right now. Emmanuel, God is with us right now in our midst. He's working. You need to be responsive to him. In fact, here's this young lady before her boy grows up. He's going to deal with these two armies. And God did. They were wiped out and a different army became the threat. But Ahaz was having none of it. Now, if we fast forward 700 odd years, there's a young couple, not married yet, in uh, Nazareth. Joseph and Mary. Mary uh, was betrothed to Joseph, means she's sort of engaged plus, but it's not plus as in married yet. They're still not coming together, right? But then she discovers that she's growing with child, which obviously sends you into a bit of a spin if you've never done you know what. So, so she was in this kind of conundrum, and every, who's going to believe her? Like she didn't do anything. Like that's kind of hard to deny, isn't it? And an angel came to her and said, what's in you? This child in you has been... It's the spirit of God that has put him there. This, you're going to bear God's son. And Joseph, what would you think if you were Joseph? All right, you, you didn't. Okay, yeah, whatever, love. Uh, okay, and Joseph actually was a nice guy. and he, he was going to kind of divorce her quietly. Just kind of let the whole thing disappear a little bit. But then an angel came to him. 
And said, Joseph, don't, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child that is in her is in her by the Holy Spirit of God. And in Matthew chapter 1, we're told this was to fulfill what was written in Isaiah the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child, and he shall be called Emmanuel. God is with us. Now, if that wasn't really predicting Jesus back in Isaiah's day, what's going on in Jesus' day? It's sort of like this. I think that back in Isaiah's day, he does look forward to Jesus. I don't think this one is particularly a strong trailer, but it's intriguing. And then 700 years later, if it was true then, how much more true is it now? She's not just a young woman that's not married yet, who gets married and has a child. This is a virgin who has, you know, and therefore this is a miracle. And and so this fulfills, it takes that promise that, had a sort of 13-year scope, and it maxes it out to a whole new level. And it says, look, Jesus is born of a virgin. This is a miraculous birth. This is God truly with us. Back in Ahaz's day, God was at work. And so he didn't know any of that Matthew Christmas stuff, but he did see this boy get born and grow. And if the boy was Isaiah's son... His second son, you thought his first son's name was cool, Sheer Jashub. His second son's name was Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which is awesome. That's my favorite. Every time uh, like my, my in-laws speak to each other in uh, Middle Eastern language sometimes, and uh, I, just, I just say that name. And they're like, well, what are you doing? Maher Shalal Hashbaz, like pass the bread. But actually, what it means is kind of swift to the booty and quick to the plunder or something. It's kind of this sort of God's... Um, judgment on the nation they're going to be they're going to be taken away from the land and so here comes isaiah with his second son a few will come back and it's coming soon and the king is kind of watching all this stuff happening in front of him and what's his response it's an important question for us because we can live in a time where where the, the things that are going on around us can trouble us but actually what's going on inside us really feels like god is trying to get our attention it may not be a prophet with two sons with bizarrely long names, but it can be circumstances. It can be certain thoughts you can't shake where God is saying, Oi, I'm trying to get your attention. What is your response to me? The response of Ahaz and that nation was not good. Instead of looking to God, they continued to look to themselves. If you let your eyes wander down to chapter 8, You'll see the, the big number eight, then over a little bit, you'll get the little number 11. Let's just read a little bit of this here because God is trying to get their attention and he is now going to give them a trailer that is Jesus. Definitely, even at that point in time. Uh, verse 11, the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, warned me not to walk in the way of this people. This is what he said. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. That's kind of bleak, isn't it? What he's saying is... you lot in, in Judah, 2,700 BC, uh, years ago, uh, 735 BC, you're all caught up in these conspiracy theories. 
Oh, we can explain what's going on. Have you heard the latest? Well, NASA have said, you know, and the conspiracy theories are going round. And God's saying, oi, stop it. You're supposed to be responding to me. God's given them a prophet and the prophet is speaking and yet they're going, hmm, now then, I've got another theory. Oh, what's your theory? And they're all caught up with these theories and these ideas, but God is nothing but offensive to them. Instead of them going, wow, there's a God and he's communicating with us, they're going, oh, get lost. And God becomes a stone of stumbling for these people. Just drop down, look at the way they respond. Doesn't this feel a little bit like our culture? Verse 19, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? These people were going off and saying, we need something spiritual. And so they're rushing off to hear from dead spirits. But they're not wanting to hear from God. There's a difference between the true God and voices in the dark. And he's saying, why are you going there? Why don't you come to me? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. As in, they're in the dark. They'll pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is bleak stuff, isn't it? But it's important. If we're not going to respond to God and say, okay, God, you're the one from outside of this darkness who can give hope. You're the one who created everything. You're the one that's offering help here and perspective and guidance and so on. If we're not going to look to him, God can say, all right, you carry on. You do it your way. Sing we are the world. We can save ourselves and see how it works out for you. And we look around our culture today and we see a whole load of people that look like they're just groping around in the dark, going from one idea to the next, one seminar to the next. No real hope within that. It's just kind of empty. And all the time, God is at work trying to get our attention by his spirit, working, wooing us, drawing us, going, Oi, can I tap you on the shoulder? Excuse me. And you see, God's a gentleman. He'll never kind of grab us and shake us and force us. But he'll keep pursuing. He'll keep nudging and poking and saying, what about this? What about this? How about this? And Isaiah carries on into chapter 9. And from this incredibly bleak darkness, he says, okay, here's some hope for you. 9 verse 2. It's talking about uh, the place called Galilee. Galilee is a region in the north of Israel that meant nothing in those days. It was so insignificant. But once you get to the Gospels, if you ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll see Galilee is a big deal. Here's Isaiah, 700 years before, talking about that place. And he says, verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Notice they haven't manufactured it. They haven't created it. They haven't even found it. It's come to them. And then it goes on and talks about rejoicing and joy and, and gladness and the burden being taken away. Verse 5, all the garments that were prepared for war being burned as fuel for the fire because there's no need for that soldier stuff anymore. Verse 6, this should sound familiar. For to us, a child is born. 
To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now that is a light at the end of the tunnel. Here's this section of Isaiah, and I encourage you to read it through and try to kind of track the story. But basically, you've got the son who's a, a sign that a few are going to come back. And then there's another son who's a sign that, uh, you know, it's going to happen quickly. But all the way through, there are these references to the child, Emmanuel, God with us. Not just in the sons of Isaiah, but ultimately, a child is going to be born. And he is the one who is going to bring peace. He is the one who's going to bring light. He is the one who's going to make everything right. Righteousness and justice. And just the descriptions. Wonderful counselor. That means like, you know what a counselor is. Someone who draws near to help and to listen and to care. He's a wonderful one. Literally, uh, the idea there is a miracle working counselor. He can do great things. He's given the label mighty God. That's not a label you throw around lightly, is it? Here's a a baby boy that's going to be born who's mighty God. Yeah. And and actually, everlasting father. That's even more confusing. I thought the father stayed in heaven and sent his son to the earth. Well, yes, that's true. But from our perspective, the son is like a father. He's a source of, of, of peace and care and protection and and, and sort of security and love and closeness and intimacy. Just think of everything that a perfect father should be. That's what Jesus came to be. When, When times are dark and when things are overwhelming, to be able to just curl up in his arms and feel completely safe and completely secure, not because you've manufactured some sort of safety and security from the inside, but because he's giving it to you from the outside. This child is significant. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. The one who's going to establish peace and righteousness and justice on the earth. Now, let me just show you something here because this is slightly confusing to us. From where we stand, as we read this, we go, okay, I recognize these words. These are Christmas words. right? You hear this on Christmas carols. Uh, Christmas uh, uh, carol services, right? These things get read uh, every year. And so those verses are saying that Jesus was born. Yeah, okay, I get that. That's cool. So how come there's still darkness? How come he hasn't solved everything then? Here coming up is a, uh, an image for us. It's not the greatest of images, but uh, what can you say? So imagine that little eye is an eye at the bottom, and that eye is looking towards that mountain. This is Isaiah's perspective. Okay, from where he's standing, he's looking forward, and he's seeing a mountain, and he's describing it. A son is born, a child is given, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And he's just describing what he sees. But actually, we know... A different perspective. 
This is what he has at the bottom, but our perspective uh, at the top is that we can tell he's looking forward and seeing actually two mountains. So he sees the birth of Christ, that's the first one there, but behind it, he's seeing the return of Christ. Let's go to the next one, Elliot, that kind of fills in the blanks a little bit. So Isaiah is over there, he looks forward and he sees the life of Christ culminating in the cross, and behind that, he sees the crown, Jesus coming as king and making everything right, and that is sometime in the future, hence the plus. And so the X, that's where we stand. We can look back on part of this being fulfilled, and we can look forward for the rest of it to be fulfilled. Now, what that means is that we're very much in the same place they were. Here were the people under Ahaz as king, living in darkness with God trying to get their attention and pointing them forward to the future when his son, Jesus, would come into the world and saying, that's your hope. Listen to me. That's your hope. And most people chose to stay in the darkness. Where we are, we're still in a dark world. We have the added bonus of being able to look back on all the fulfillment that happened when Jesus came and fulfilled all the promises about his first coming to the earth. But at the same time, in this darkness, God is at work, nudging and poking and trying to get our attention and pointing us towards when his son comes again. And when he comes again, he's going to make everything right. And so if Isaiah was talking to Ahaz and Ahaz's response was kind of like, eh, I can handle it. I wonder what our response is. As God pokes us and says, okay, what about you? Are you going to, you know, we are the world. We can make this a better day. Come on, let's just start giving. Let's save ourselves. Is that your response? Or are you going to look for help from the outside? Christianity has got this weird reputation where people think that Christians are full of themselves and really kind of arrogant and confident, like, you know, we're perfect. We're not. The reality is that Christians go, imperfect right here, failure right here, hopeless right here, but God has done something. It's not that we fixed ourselves. We accept the darkness. Nevertheless, the Bible says there's hope. And the hope comes from outside of us. The hope comes in the person of Jesus Christ. He came 2,000 years ago, was born, was laid in the manger. He grew up, uh, went about in the area of Galilee mostly for three years, did all the miracles and the teachings, the stuff you can read about in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. And then he went to the cross and he died. And it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't that things got out of hand. That was the plan. Later on, we're going to see in Isaiah that there's an incredible description of the cross and all that it achieved, written 700 years beforehand. That was part of the plan. But also, Jesus was coming to establish the throne, to establish things, to make things right, to sort out all injustice. That was part of the plan too. And from Isaiah's perspective, it just seems to be one thing off in the distance. I don't think he could put it together, but we know that there's a gap, a couple of thousand years between Jesus coming to go to the cross and Jesus coming to sit on his throne. So as we finish, I just want to read to you uh, from the start of Isaiah 11. And really what I want to ask is this, not going to go into the details of it, but if this is looking forward to the light at the end of the tunnel, I'm not asking you do, you, do you get all the details? Do you understand it? I'm asking you simply this. Do you find yourself drawn towards this person? 
Does this Jesus attract you? And does what he's coming to do make your heart go, oh, yes, please. I want that. That, that meets the cravings that I feel inside me. Okay, so is this Jesus attractive and is this plan something that you kind of lean towards? Let's uh, look at this and then after this I'll I'll close in prayer. If you have any questions, we'll just have a few minutes for for questions. Uh, If you wanted to write them on post-its, feel free to do that. And then after I finish, we'll just have a minute or so to collect any in. uh, And then Dave will handle that part. But let's just look at these verses to finish here and, and ask ourselves the same question that Ahaz should have asked himself. Is this Emmanuel, this God with us person, who's somehow going to be born as a little baby and then be the king over everything, is he and is his plan attractive to me or am I going to go it alone and do it in my own way? Look at Isaiah 11. He says in verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Here's some description. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. If you ever find yourself craving righteousness and justice, if you ever see an injustice and you go, come on, can't somebody deal with that wickedness? He will. It will be taken care of. In the end, there will be no injustice left. Look at this next bit, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. I don't know about you, but I, I find this world a scary place apart from the animal kingdom. But what he's describing here is when Jesus is in charge, when Jesus sets things up properly, Even the animals are going to be gracious to each other. You won't worry about your child going off and playing with the wolf or the leopard. Look at the next verse. Uh, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. That's a scary thought. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not destroy or hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right now, that's not true. Right now, we fear for the future of our children. We fear for their safety. We kind of find ourselves thinking, oh, this world's getting darker and darker and bleaker and bleaker. But Jesus is going to make it so that there's safety everywhere. When the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. Because when everyone fully knows God, everything will be fully right. Oh, we could read on. There's so many details. Let me just dip into chapter 12 as we come to an end. This is what... Isaiah said to Ahaz back then, and it's like he's saying it to us as well. You will say in that day, if you responsive, if you trust in God, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become 
my salvation with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. Oh, so, such a, an amazing book. In some ways, it's overwhelming, and some of the darkness described is almost too much. And yet, throughout the book of Isaiah, he's saying, let me tell you what's off on the horizon. God's going to step in, and he's going to make things right. He's going to come in the form of a little baby boy, and yet he's going to be the mighty God. He's going to come and he's going to go to the cross. We'll discover that in a later passage. He's going to come and he's going to wear the crown and he's going to make everything as it should be. The question is for us, same as it was for them. As God works in us now, is our response trust or trusting self? Is our response to deny that things are as black as the Bible says they are? Or do we accept that they are as black and as bleak as the Bible says they are? And at the same time say, okay, I'm reaching out for you, Lord, because you're the one that is offering me hope. We can look back to the first coming. We look forward to the second coming of Christ. And in the meantime, Isaiah says, don't look inwards. Look up. Because God is going to make things right.